Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, we're talking housing. Looking for a house? We've got the right guest for you. People say to me, well, should I look at my house as an investment? And I say, well, you can and you should because I want you to buy a house that's smart, but you can't live in the street. And if you pay rent, think about this, you're just paying somebody else's mortgage. So wake up and try to figure out where you want to be in five to 10 years and see if there's an affordable way to buy your little piece of the American dream. Because if there is, the earlier you buy, the wealthier you're going to be later in life. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, uh, you know, we just found out that the home ownership rate has ticked up just slightly, but inventory remains so tight. If you're looking for a house, you want to get into the market, you better stay tuned. We've got a great guest, Elise Glink. She has just released the fully revised and updated edition of 100 Questions Every First Time Homebuyer Should Ask. So stay tuned. Here's our interview with Elise. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I am delighted to welcome my friend and former colleague, Elise Glink. She is the author of 100 Questions Every First Time Homebuyer Should Ask. She's also the founder and CEO of Best Money Moves. So, Elise, we start the program with a very important question. You ready? Ready. What is the best financial decision you have ever made? Wow, there have been so many of them, but I will say that the single best one that I ever made for myself, as opposed to sort of jointly with my husband or with my, you know, for my kids and future family, um, the single best one is when I was 22 years old and I put $2,000 into an IRA. And how did you know to do that? Were you were you told to do that or you just read about it? How, how did you know? Um, I was um, always interested in the stock market. This is well before I became a financial journalist. I was in my first job as a uh, commercial property office manager, which was an awful job, <laughs> <laughs> working for perfectly horrid people. You know, I was making all of $18,000 a year. But my grandfather, with whom I had um, all been investing, and he was an investor in the stock market, and he had a very, his very firm rule was when it doubles, sell half. And he made a really nice, huge amount of money actually doing that. And I learned about that from him. And he, so I made this money, and he said, Well, uh, I know you want to move out of the house, which is fine, but I also want you to take $2,000 and put it away. Now, when you were making $18,000, 2000 was a whole lot of money. Yeah. But I did. I put it away. And then next year I did it again. And the next year. And then he said, um, and this is one of the last conversations we had before he he died. He died when I was 24 or 25. And he said, look, you know, I always aim to put away between 15 and 25 percent of my income and you should do the same. I thought, okay, that seems like a lot. But Sam and I got married and we started doing just that. That's awesome. I love it. All right. So let's talk about the new book, 100 Questions for Every First Time Homebuyer. This is the fourth edition. And I noticed that the previous three editions were in 1994, 1999 and 2005. So this is updated since the housing boom and bust. What have you learned 
in all these years of covering the housing market and being an expert, what did you learn in that housing crisis that surprised you more than anything else? I think what I learned, and I learned it pretty early, um, around 2004, three, four, and five, actually. So when the housing boom was going, I learned that uh, big financial services companies make really dumb decisions in order to satisfy Wall Street. It was a, as a financial journalist, that's something I always knew. But to see it play out in real time, um, watching you know big banks approve loans for people who made $50,000 and they would get $500,000 loans. And as a real estate reporter, I knew that was never going to work out well because you know you couldn't even if you could pick your own interest rate, it was negative amortization loans and they were just calling it by another name. And watching that happen uh, just with regularity and watching that uh, bubble form in real time and trying to warn people about that, uh, that, was, that was really sort of the greatest lesson learned. And I, and I knew that it would end it badly and it did like all bubbles. Uh, and you feel for the people whose lives were destroyed and there were millions and millions of them. And that's when I first met you. We were both working with CBS Money Watch and you were covering some of the government's response to these beleaguered homeowners. And just if you wouldn't mind, uh, because I think a lot of people don't remember that time very well, you were sort of stuck right in the middle of it and hearing from people. Can you describe a little bit of those efforts and uh, what happened with all these different efforts to help people who were underwater and various permutations of government plans and acronyms. So Money Watch launched in April of 2009. I started writing about the number of foreclosures and people who couldn't get redress from their lenders. I was watching as Making Home Affordable and HARP kind of got introduced as people started to flow through those programs. And what I think wasn't well understood is that lenders, mortgage lenders, were never in the business really of making loan modifications. I mean, there were like three people out of maybe 26,000 customer service reps who had ever done that for any of it. And suddenly their whole business had flipped and they needed to, they were getting inbound, you know, hundreds of thousands of calls, nobody to handle it. Nobody knew why there was bad communication. So all of that was what I was tracking. After a while, it became clear that this was going to go on for much longer than anybody ever imagined. And in 2010, I had real estate economists telling me that it would be 2016, 17 before everything shook out. And they were right. That's amazing. Coming out of that lengthy recovery period, give us a sense of where we are 10 years hence, right? We're really probably, I guess, the peak of the real estate market was 06, beginning of 06. So where are we and how do you feel about the housing market in general these years later? So the housing market has, again, flipped entirely. Um, and you have to start with the underlying knowledge that real estate is very cyclical. I mean, people talk about the cycles in commercial real estate where you have overbuilding and then there's too much and then it gets absorbed and then they start building again. Same thing happens with houses, except it's different this time. So what's happened in the housing market? Loan forgiveness is over. You know, interest rates have stayed uh, very, very low. And historically, we're still at under 4% for a 30-year mortgage, which nobody thought. In 2011, they thought we'd have hyperinflation of 10% or higher. 
So we're in this place where ultra low interest rates, an improved market, more people are back at work. We've seen the unemployment rate come down dramatically. And now, you know, we're ready for a big explosion, except some of the other market forces are getting in the way of that. And what are those market forces besides low inventory and besides the fact that millennials are just different? Talk about why the millennials are so different and what's going on for them. So what's different about millennials is, first of all, they've time shifted every major early milestone in their lives. They're taking longer to get through college. They're coming out of college with more debt. They also, though, have time shifted by seven years, the age at which they get married, have kids and buy a house. So when I started writing about real estate and the the first edition of this book was, was getting written in 1993, people, the average age that people bought their first home was about 26, 26 and a half. Today, it's almost 34. Wow. That's really amazing. Yeah, that's huge. Is the experience of living through the housing crisis sour them on the idea, forgetting about the time shift and all those other real life factors, do they not believe purchasing a home is part of the quote unquote American dream? In my view, there are two pieces of the millennials. There's the older millennials who were old enough to witness firsthand what happened to their parents and are freaked at, were freaked out by it. And there are younger millennials. My kids are actually, I don't know, maybe Alex is the last year of the millennials. It depends how you count or, or they're both younger than that. You know, when I look at the older millennials, I do see people in, who are 35, six and seven, right? It's sort of four, five, six, seven are the oldest part of those older generation of millennials. And if you think about where they were 10 years ago in their mid to late twenties, they were certainly old enough to see what was going on. But they had also come out of school with a lot of debt. So they hadn't, the time shift had already begun. Everybody thinks about the housing crisis as being 07, 08, 09. But the truth is that unemployment didn't start coming down. Mortgage rates were low, but you didn't have the housing market really start to recover until we had processed all those loans that were in foreclosure or short sales. And most of that didn't start to happen until 2013, 2014. It's only 2018. That's very recent history. And so a lot of people are scarred by that. Millennials, baby boomers, Gen X, which is kind of the forgotten generation. When you encounter these people and they call you or they talk to you and they write to you, what is it that that you want to tell them about this housing market? There's such low inventory. Let's get into some of these 100 questions that you've put together and updated for every first time home buyer. Let's try to do the top five in your mind. What are the top five questions? Let's start with numero uno. What can you afford? This is where HGTV has done the world a dreadful service. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it. And I used to consult with them, all full disclosure. But when you watch HGTV or you are looking on Pinterest or House or any number of websites, Zillow is another thing, and you look at houses that are so beautiful and they're move-in ready and you just start playing games with numbers. And I think that, you know, for today's millennials, there's so much debt that they have that when they really start to get serious about a house, oftentimes they don't even realize they can't come close to affording it. There's a mismatch there. And it really, I think, has gotten millennials very, very despondent that they can't have the house that their parents live in now. But it's so funny, like like the, the we were just talking about this recently being like, you know, old farts that we are among friends that, that, you know, there is no such thing as a starter house anymore. That no one wants to go like, I don't want to be in a starter house. When did that start to change? You know, this focus on the Instagrammable life, 
which millennials are the first generation to really live most of their lives online. They trust online connections and contacts more than they trust um, almost any other source of information except their own parents. But they, their parents have given them a lot. We've given our children a lot. And it's what they haven't been given, they've imagined that is their rightful ownership. While millenn- the younger millennials are, are very cost conscious as a group, they, they work hard, they understand that they have a lot of debt. They've also become rather despondent that they're never going to buy a house. And I think this is what's worried the real estate industry more than anything. And frankly, if interest rates were back over four and a half, five percent, it would be a lot cheaper for them to rent, even though rents are escalating too. And so this particular generation is coming of age in a very difficult time. All right. How much can I afford? Numero uno. Give me number two. I think number two is, is what do you want versus what do you need? And I call that making your wish list and your reality check. And the wish list, obviously, it's easy to dream up every single fabulous thing you've ever seen on house. But I think your reality check is what you can't live without, right? And so you may want the four-bedroom house. You may want the you know fabulous kitchen. And you may want the big, huge backyard and whatever. But what you need is maybe a great school district. You need three bedrooms. You need two and a half baths. So you, everybody's wish list is going to be different. And in the book, I recommend that you make your own wish list and your own reality check and then sit down with a glass of wine or a bottle of wine or something stronger and figure out how you're going to make those two lists into one list, because that involves a lot of conversations about what you're willing to trade off. And then maybe when you looked at your reality check and you say it has to be walking distance to a train, it has to be a good school system, and you find that there are you know, exactly three homes for sale in your price range that hit your reality checklist. What's your next question? Your next question is, let's look out and look at your time horizon. Asking yourself, what is your time horizon um, is something that I don't think many home buyers do. And certainly first time home buyers don't know to do that. And the mistake I used to see the way it would emerge was people would sign a lease for a year and then they would go out and decide to buy a house, find one in three months, close, and then they're stuck paying both rent and mortgage. Today, the timing is a little bit different because they still sign leases, but it can be so fast to buy a house and they don't think about how quickly you can close. Technology has really impacted this in a brand new way. So nobody knows how long it's going to take today. And I think the timing issue has been hard for people. And so on the same time, there's been a huge demand for rentals. So landlords are less likely to give you a month to month. Mm -hmm. And so you have to plan for how long you might be paying that rent and mortgage or figure out where you're going to move that isn't going to charge you rent, mom's mom's basement, while you you work out your timing. And so it's, it's a complicated timing horizon today. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Elise Glenk in just a minute. And, you know, one thing we didn't really talk about here, and that is how hard it is to go through the home buying process alone. That's why, actually, I think it's a great idea for you to get some help to have a realtor assist you in the process. And, you know, just like buying a house is emotional, so, too, is managing your money. And that's one reason you should take a look at Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. And the thing that I love about Betterment personalized advice 
for your financial planning needs. You know, you think of like, oh, I'm just going to go talk to my brother, my cousin. No, you need someone who actually knows something. You need a service. You need a firm that has strategies to help increase your after-tax returns. Go to Betterment.com slash off to learn more. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to our interview with Elise Glenk. Are there some questions that you would ask or a couple of questions or a question that would show you whether or not you should just take the plunge and even not maybe not buy your dream house, but buy a house versus continuing to rent? Well, the timing question comes into play here as well, because I also ask you to not just look at where you are today, but where are you going to be in the next five to 10 years? Tax reform is going to play a huge role in how people think about housing, because one of the lesser discussed changes is that instead of being able to sell your house every 24 months and keeping the profit tax free, you now have to live there as your primary residence for five out of eight years. This is a major shift in tax law that the realtors and the home builders were fighting against because they actually think it's going to kill what people are, you know, the people are going to sell less frequently. And I think that's true for people who are home buyers, millennials who are, who often change jobs, they change locations. They're used to moving around Making a five-year to 10-year time horizon is a big one unless you're in your early 30s, getting married, um, starting a family, and you can see your way clear to where you might want to have a school district for that kid or or two kids. You, you could see your way clear to that. And that's actually a harder decision. Like, how do you look forward in careers and in future planning of families? And mm. very hard to do. And I think that it's, uh, we talk a lot, of, I talk a lot about it in the book. So let's kind of round out our top five questions here with some questions that maybe could help people get a little bit more real with themselves and maybe determine whether they should just figure out some new avenue in terms of career wise or should they move to a different market? What are some other questions that people can can ask themselves as they approach this process to expand the net? Well, I think you have to ask yourself, it goes back to what are you willing to trade off? you know, question. And that's not just about location or school district, which are very important. It's not just about distance to family and friends and church. It's also about this idea of what is the ideal lifestyle look to you? You know, what does that look like? And how do you make that happen? And so one of the things I talk about in the book is I'm walking people through budgets, right? So this generation, more than any other, it's about experience over material items, um, especially the younger half of this generation. But material, you know, things, you know, can be translated into cash if you need it, whereas experiences, they enrich your life. But it's hard to trade like zip lining into a down payment for a house. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't work that well. You know, when I talk to people and I talk to millennials and I say to them, you know, I, I talked to not that long ago, I went and gave a speech in front of a, a huge public relations firm in Chicago. There were about 80, 80 millennials of varying ages. And I said, how many of you have a car? Almost nobody raised their hands. And how many of you use Uber and Lyft and cabs and whatever over the weekend? They almost all raised their hands. How many of you spend $100 a weekend on Uber and Lyft? More than half raised their hands. I said, okay, that's roughly $5,000 a year after tax that you have just tossed out, lit a match to, you're never going to get back. And then where do you go? And they're like, oh, we go to the bars and 
we buy booze beforehand and then we drink later at the bar because we're saving money. And I said, okay, so how much on this bar, dinner, drinking, blah, 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 how much do you spend in, you know, in a given weekend? Oh, I don't know, 100 to 200 bucks. I said, okay, so your weekends are costing you 15,000 bucks minimum in cash a year. And they all looked like, oh my gosh, that's a huge amount of money because people don't understand that their weekly massage that they need to be relaxed and zen, you know, is 140 bucks that they're never going to see again and what that adds up to. And we used to talk about it in terms of packs of cigarettes. Well, that's not so hip for millennials today. They might talk about it in terms of edibles, but the same thing holds true. You're trading experience for cash. So before we wrap up, Elise, Elise Glink, the author of the phenomenal 100 questions every first time homebuyer should ask, what is the question that that you think is most important for a first time homebuyer to ask that we haven't covered yet that will really kind of obviously provoke you to ask a series of other questions? Because it seems to me that there's really like 500 questions, but you ask 100 and it gets us all thinking, right? Well, there's actually like 300 questions in the book, but I, 300 would have just been, you know, overwhelming. So I've hidden them away in terms of statements. But I think the thing you have to really ask yourself is, am I ready to make a commitment? And it's taking millennials longer to make those commitments. We're seeing that time shift in, in all these major milestones. I just want people to be ready because buying a house and paying your mortgage is just the beginning. You know this. You, you know, you and I have bought many houses over the years. You know, there's maintenance and there's upkeep. And if you're living in a condo or a co-op or a townhouse or, you know, you may have a homeowner's association fee. There's all sorts of things that come up uh, that you may not be expecting. And what you get out of that is forced savings. And so people say to me, well, should I look at my house as an investment? And I say, well, you can and you should because I want you to buy a house that's smart, but you can't live in the street. And if you pay rent, think about this, you're just paying somebody else's mortgage. So wake up and try to figure out where you wanna be in five to 10 years and see if there's an affordable way to buy your little piece of the American dream. Because if there is, the earlier you buy, the wealthier you're gonna be later in life because you're gonna get into a habit of saving so you can afford all kinds of things that may or may not happen and it's just a plus on for you long term. But don't do it unless you ask these 300, I mean, 100 questions, especially <laughs> if you're a first time home buyer. Elise Glink, author and founder and CEO of Best Money Moves. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, last question before we go. You ready, Elise? Ready. We started with your very best financial decision. Two grand in an IRA back in 1921. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> What was exactly. your what was your worst financial decision? Well, I've been public about this one, so I'll I'll repeat it here. I got invited to go with my husband and one of his clients to a real estate auction. And my husband's client had already qualified for it and they were selling uh, auctioning off some condos. And I knew the condos because they were near where I lived and I thought that they were auctioning it off at a great price. And so we bid on it. I got caught up in it and we bid on the property. Oh my gosh. So the it turns out that there was um, not a lawsuit against the building, but there was a problem that had been uncovered that had not been disclosed in the auction. 
that ended up costing us an extra $25,000. Condo itself was only like 300,000. So that was a huge hit, plus the maintenance and the ongoing stuff. And then we started to rent it out. And then uh, the recession hit. We ended up getting out even, even with all the money we spent. It should have been a huge win for us, but it wasn't. But it was bad enough. And the mistake, though, that I made, you asked me about the biggest mistake. The mistake that I made was getting caught up in the auction and bidding more than I should have without knowing what I did. So I got lucky that I didn't lose my shirt. But the mistake was a serious one. And it was problematic for about a seven or eight or nine year period that we owned it. And we were lucky that we got out with our shirts because now today, 10 years beyond, that property is still selling for what we sold it for. It's had zero appreciation. Oh, my God. Thank goodness you're out. And on to wonderful things, continued great success. And thank you so much for joining us, Elise. It's been a pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for that part of the program where you get to tell us what's going on in your financial life, and maybe we can help you out. If you've got a financial question and you would like to be the listener question of the week or the better off bonus call of the week, then you can just shoot us an email. Very easy. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And today we are talking to Eric, who's on the line from Salt Lake City. Hey, Eric, are you the only place out west that had a decent ski season? No, we had no snow whatsoever. (laughs) No. How is that possible? I mean, all those poor people who just, like, go out to Salt Lake to go skiing and boom, no snow. Oh, well. Yeah, I always always feel terrible when you see people who flew in from, like, Italy or something. Oh. And meanwhile, Europe actually had a good ski season. Not that I ski anymore. But, okay, let's get to you, Eric. What's going on? So... My wife and I, we recently, we sold our house for a decent profit, thanks to the great housing market, and we just had a baby, so we needed to get a new car. Um, It's a great deal. We've got family and friends uh, pricing on the car, which is like 12.5% off the sticker price. Nice. We we have the cash to pay for it in full, Mm -hmm. um, and we've got excellent credit and everything to get a good loan. But I've, I've been wondering if just buying it outright is too simple. We had a family friend who was telling me that they basically pay their mortgage through an investment account, which just mitigates any of the interest on the mortgage. Oh, my God. What a knucklehead. That's a person who doesn't think stocks can ever go down. So don't worry. Yeah. Don't, let's push that aside for a second. Let me get. Let me ask you a quick question. How much cash do you have on hand right now, Eric? Uh, about 65000 Okay. Besides the car, anything else that you need to do with that money? Uh, nope, we've already taken care of all of our student loans and all of our other debt, so that's just... And what about a house? Like, did you buy a new house? No, we uh, we moved into an apartment locally here. The plan originally was we were going to move out of state, but that fell through, so we're staying in an apartment to help us save up for a little bit to to buy a house. Ah, when do you think you would need the money to buy a house? Like, what's the... Let's talk about the time horizon. That would be second baby probably four years from now okay so for four years you'll be okay the 65 grand does that include your emergency reserve fund or is it on top of your emergency reserve fund that includes it and so of the 65 how much would you say is your emergency reserve probably about 35 okay so how much do you have to pay for this car 
Uh, I think when all is said and done, when we get rid of our other car, it works out to like thirty six five. When you buy this new car, have you looked at what the car loan would be? What like the the rate that you'd have to pay for a car loan? Um, yeah, and I, I can get it with a couple different credit unions locally, but and they'll all credit match the uh, the interest rate, but it's somewhere around like three point one nine percent. All right, so we'll call it three point two percent, and you have no other debt. What about other assets? You have money in retirement and stuff like what else is going on in your financial life? Yeah, my wife has a 401k and a small IRA that was from a previous job. I've got a Roth IRA that I paid to that doesn't have any match or anything like that. I just work for a a small art gallery Uh in town. So um, Um, for both of you together, how much money is in retirement assets? Uh, right now, probably about $28,000. And is she putting how much into her 401k? What's her contribution level? Uh, I think she puts like 350 in a month. Do you know what percentage that is of her pay? Uh, I think it's three and a half percent. She doesn't put money into the old IRA. Do you, and, and how much are you putting into your Roth? Uh, I just do 150 bucks a month. She makes more than me. If if you didn't have a car payment, could you put more money into your retirement accounts? Um, no, because we haven't had a car payment for a while. Could you squeeze more out of your cash flow to increase that, or is it like the new baby and it's too much? Like when you when you're in this apartment now, tell me about you know how much you think you can put into retirement going forward. Um. It's really being in the apartment allows us to have a savings account again because the house was basically a, a money pit. Hundred mm. year old house will do oh, that to you. Yeah. Um, so now we're able to go back to having a savings account, which is we're able to put away something like twenty five hundred dollars a month just savings, which could be split up any number of ways. And then we've got two hundred set aside for her five twenty nine account for the baby's five twenty nine account. All right. So let me back up a couple of things. One is that, you know, if if the car loan is three point two percent, it's not that much, but you still are paying interest for a depreciating asset. So if you're the kind of people who actually are going to drive a car for 10 years and drive it into the ground, then frankly, paying cash makes a lot of sense. It really does. But I'm not thrilled with you, like soaking up all the money in this cash account because as you said you at least need 35 as your emergency reserve so then you've got 30 left over in terms of having access to that money there's a couple of ideas that I have number one is that maybe what you do is you take of the 30 you say all right what did I put into my Roth IRA last year whatever it is you know a couple thousand dollars let me use part of the 30,000 and make the rest of my contribution for 2017. So before you do your taxes, you can top off your 2017 Roth. Then you can pre-fund your 2018 Roth out of this 30 grand and be done with it. And then whatever is left over, let's call it 20-ish, 25-ish, you can use that for the car and then get a loan for whatever's left of, of you know the balance. And you'll pay that off pretty quickly, I presume. The alternative is you take the whole 30 grand, you say, that's it, that's what I'm going to pay for the car, 
and um, you just keep kind of going along as you as you may. You know what I'm saying? That like you just keep doing what you're doing. But I think the idea that you have this cash that's available makes me want to deploy it into that Roth to kickstart your retirement savings. And then next piece of this is I don't really think you should be putting money in a 529 account until you're both maxing out your retirement accounts. I know that you are great parents and you care about your kids' education, but it is much more important at this point in your lives that you are maxing out your retirement account and building that nest egg up than saving for your 529. I really think this is an important concept. People seem to do this all the time. They fund college because college comes first, right? So they say, oh, I'll fund college because the kid's going to go to college first. But in fact, you should be funding your own retirement, maxing that out. And then once you max out, once she's putting a whole bunch of money in her 401k and you're putting that 5500 into your Roth, then you start doing the 529 plan. You can always borrow from a retirement account later. You can tap retirement account for education, but you you cannot really put education first because the retirement is actually a more important priority for you guys. And, you know, honestly, if the if you're sold on the car and, you know, you like having the car, the, the real question becomes, can you juice up your retirement contribution or maybe you, you split the difference and say, I just want a teeny tiny car loan that I can pay off pretty fast because we haven't had a car loan. But you see my point about having this cash available to be able to kickstart some of your retirement savings? Yeah. Okay. I think that that makes more sense. So is there any scenario where you would use an investment account to pay off a loan? Yeah. I mean, if you had, yeah, I would, no, I would use it if you had, if you had a hundred thousand dollars in a retire, in a uh, taxable account. Sure. Why not? But you don't have that. You don't have a taxable account, do you? Uh, I do. It's part of that. But it's part of the 65. uh, Yes. Yeah, sure. But I don't think that it makes sense because, okay, here's the point that people will say to you, like a a broker will be like, oh, you know what? Keep all the money in your brokerage account. Keep making money. Keep making money. And then, you know, you can just pay your mortgage from that. What happens when the market goes down? You're going to like you're going to are people going to then sell assets at a loss or when they're 20 percent lower in order to pay their mortgage? I just think that's a bad idea. Okay. good. You ready to go out and yeah. take a nice walk at Salt Lake City? I mean, you're in a beautiful place. Yeah. We've got to get this baby out of this apartment. She's getting stir crazy. All right. Goodbye. Have a great day. Thank you for calling. Thanks. Bye. That's it. Another show in the can. Thanks again to our guest, Elise Glink, as well as our caller, Eric. We drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Download the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Or go to JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And we're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. See you next week.